Chapter 2 The Right to a Self-Determined Life No man is good enough to govern another man without the other's consent. Abraham Lincoln, President Who Did It Anyway In 1957, the German government under Konrad Adenauer, with its majority in Parliament and against the advice of numerous experts, decided to introduce a pay-as-you-go pension insurance system. Participation in this system is mandatory for the vast majority of employees. Since then, the pension level has fallen from the target of 60% of the last average wage to 48%, despite people working longer. In 1999, the Cole government, with its majority in Parliament and against the advice of numerous experts, decided to introduce the euro as the common currency in Germany. The working population, whose productivity had made the Deutschmark a relatively stable currency with corresponding purchasing power, was not asked. Since then, all the rules established to assure the euro's stability have been broken. In fact, Germany co-finances the highly indebted southern euro countries today. The corresponding credit claims, including Target 2 balances, are likely to be irrecoverable. In 2001, the Schroeder government and its majority in Parliament decided to deploy troops in Afghanistan to stabilize an Islamic regime which, among other things, punishes the conversion to Christianity with death. This deployment cost the lives of up to 54 German soldiers and cost the taxpayer cost of almost 10 billion euros. In June 2011, the Merkel government announced its withdrawal from nuclear energy, contrary to contractual agreements reached shortly before. As a result, not only have energy prices risen sharply, but the federal states and ultimately taxpayers are facing billions in claims for damages from energy companies. In September 2015, the Merkel regime ordered the opening of the country's borders, with the result that masses of predominantly unqualified young men from developing countries came to Germany. The government itself estimates the cost required for this, in particular the welfare state alimony of these people, at 100 billion euros over the next five years alone. According to other estimates, the costs are at least double that figure. Since then, the security situation in Germany has intensified considerably. Public festivals in major German cities can often only be held with elaborate security precautions. The number of violent crimes has risen sharply. It would be easy to extend this list further or to find comparable situations in other countries. Here is one. Since the Afghanistan conflict started more than 16 years ago, the U.S. has spent an estimated $877 billion. Until today, there have been more than 2,260 U.S. military deaths and about 20,290 injuries throughout the war. But what is common to all these events? One, a small minority has made decisions based on their own assessments and preferences that affect all people in their domain. Two, this minority has no economic disadvantages to fear if its decisions cause financial or other damage. Three, the main burden of implementing the decisions must be borne by those who were not allowed to have a say in them.
This basic mechanism will not be affected by the need for parliamentary approval or the involvement of other bodies. However, the examples shown are only part of the problem. The problem covers practically every area of life. From birth to death, rules are laid down without regard to whether those affected would make such a choice if they were allowed to make their own decisions. In principle, the whole system is based on A deciding what B and C have to do and what they have to pay to D and A. In other areas of life, however, man can certainly decide for himself. For example, what he eats, what clothes, which car, which friends, and which spouse he chooses. He decides which trips he will take, which financial investments he will make, which insurance policies he will take out, and in which color he will paint his apartment. He chooses for which purposes he donates, which hobbies he pursues, and which electronic devices he purchases. He decides what opinion he has and which clubs and initiatives he supports, where he works and in which profession, whether he wants to have children or not. Obviously, humans are able to make these decisions on their own responsibility. Then, why shouldn't he also decide for himself in other areas? For example, how he plans for his retirement, which means of payment he prefers, which political concerns he supports, from which energy sources he obtains his electricity, with whom he lives, and whom he wants to subsidize. Imagine you live in an automobile democracy. In an automobile democracy, everyone has the right, but also the duty, to buy a car. What this car looks like, how it is motorized, what interior and what color it has, has been decided by the democratically chosen car government. This also determines the price you have to pay. Both are often unpleasant. Then another government is elected with other preferences that it imposes on car buyers. There is constant hitting and poking about what this single car is like. Countless manufacturers and suppliers maintain lobbyists in the capital so that their products are built into the car model of the respective government. Shifting interest groups, which prefer different types of engines, are also trying to influence parliament and government. Countless auto-political groups claim that they are unable to pay the full price and therefore try to get discounts. A few years ago, a second type of car was introduced, which is more simply equipped and cheaper. Many intellectuals criticize that this has created a two-tier society, but everyone agrees on one thing. The system may have shortcomings, but there is no better one. Because what would be the alternative? Only an auto-dictator or king of cars, however, who is not democratically elected, and determines what type of car there must be for everyone at what price. They had that before, and nobody wants to go back to that system. The idea that people can choose the car they like best from countless different offers and manufacturers with the equipment they like best is completely unthinkable for the citizens of automobile democracy. This idea is so bizarre that it is not even discussed in public. In fact, we live in such a system. One simply replaces the word automobile with state services and activities. Taxpayers must finance subsidies for uneconomical technologies, state television stations, and military missions abroad, chairs for gender studies and theology, even if they reject all this. 
Citizens will continue to be forced to take out pension, health, and nursing care insurance, whether they like it or not. You may not purchase light bulbs, powerful vacuum cleaners, plastic bags, or cigarettes without warnings. And the list of prohibitions and commandments is getting longer every year. In other words, citizens are not customers but subjects. Why is that so? And why don't most people object? A new concept of sovereignty. This is because we still adhere to a concept of state and sovereignty that dates back to a time of absolutism. The term sovereignty is used in the domestic realm to designate the supreme authority to exercise power in the state. According to the original concept, the monarch is entitled to this sovereignty. In democratic states, this has shifted to the people, whereby popular sovereignty is usually limited to the one-time adoption of a constitution and participation in elections and occasional referenda. While yesterday's world knew monarchic sovereigns, today's world consists of collective sovereigns, whereby the collectives have delegated their power to bodies which, as experience shows, increasingly and ultimately only pursue their own interests. Back to the car example. Wouldn't it be great if you could decide for yourself what car you buy, what equipment it has, and what price you are willing to pay for it? Or if you could refrain from buying a car at all? It is not the case that the only alternative to the democratic choice of a government that determines the car type is a dictator or monarch who autocratically and without judicial control prescribes a car. Co-determination and autocratic determination are not the only alternatives. Self-determination is also an option. Why should a group of other people even decide how to lead your life? This is especially true if you have neither selected nor commissioned these people, nor are they particularly competent. You may feel that you have the right to organize your life and circumstances as you see fit and, if you want something from others, to do so on a voluntary basis. You do not want co-determination, you want self-determination. This leads to two general principles. First, that the one who does not harm others has the right to be left alone, even by the government or the majority. Second, that human interaction takes place on a voluntary basis and not on the basis of coercion, even in large groups. Today's states cannot only not guarantee either of these two principles, they are based on the violation of them. The government enforces what it wants because of its monopoly on the use of force, and you have to pay whether you like the measure or not. This also applies to Western democracies. The replacement of the dictatorship of individuals by the dictatorship of party oligarchies or majorities is certainly not the end of history. Freedom and coercive rule are not compatible. Whether this rule is democratically legitimized or not is irrelevant for this finding. Freedom requires voluntariness. Anyone who is a member of a state must, in the traditional interpretation, follow all the rules made by the state, regardless of which laws the state establishes or amends. In disputes, state courts make the final decision. This external control goes so far that even the abandonment of citizenship cannot change anything. If you move away from Germany, for example, you not only have to pay an exit tax, but are also taxable for a further 10 years on income from all German assets, 
even if you give up your German citizenship. Even when relinquishing U.S. citizenship, an exit tax is due, in addition to a four-digit processing fee. France, which has been losing large numbers of tax-paying citizens for years, deliberately puts bureaucratic hurdles in the way of those willing to leave. A good friend, who had been married to a Monegasque for more than 10 years and lived in Monaco, was granted Monegasque citizenship. Therefore, she wanted to give up her French citizenship. She had to explain this in detail and was even summoned to a hearing before a commission which finally asked her to cut up her French passport before all those present. However, she no longer agreed with this harassment. She put her passport on the table and took her leave. All these processes are more reminiscent of buying your way out of serfdom than ending a relationship among equals. Mind you, in these examples we are talking about three states that claim to be strongholds of liberty. No service provider treats its customers this way. If one terminates a relationship, one usually receives a letter in which the contract termination is confirmed with regret. Often, a reason is requested so the provider can improve, and they are pleased when the customer returns. Sometimes you are even offered better conditions if you withdraw your cancellation. We should transfer this civilized, customer-friendly approach to the market of living together. How can this succeed? Self-Determination Considering the abstention from violence against others, every person has the right to live his or her life as he or she sees fit. This conclusion is essential if people are to live together peacefully in the long term. Anything else would mean giving certain people or the majority more rights than others. Since everyone wants to be able to undertake successful action, and this is only possible if third parties do not prevent this, they must also be prepared not to interfere in the actions of others. This corresponds to the golden rule, according to which one should behave as one expects from others, positive variant, or one should not do things to others that one does not want to suffer negative variant. The second variant is the less far-reaching and therefore easier to comply with. It is embodied in the proverb, Do not do unto others what you would not have them do unto you. I will consider this more closely in the following. The golden rule has been known since ancient times as a guideline for action. That is why it is so universally applicable, because it does not require recourse to divine commandments alleged natural law, or the concept of self-ownership. It is simply an outflow of reciprocity, like you to me, so I to you. Kant's categorical imperative is ultimately also based on such a universalization of one's own judgments, whereby the distinction is made there with reference to the maxims of action between purely subjective inclinations and interests that vary greatly from person to person on the one hand and the universal freedoms and limits that apply to them on the other. In reality, of course, much would be gained if at least the golden rule was respected in the form represented here. If this were the case, there could be no institutions, politicians, religions nor majority, which have the right to interfere with people against their will in their own sphere, their way of life. Of course, those institutions have taken it upon themselves to do exactly that, but that is simply arrogance. 
Only I have the right to determine my life as long as I also allow others to do so. My way of life is thus based on a universal principle of reason granted to everyone in the same way. Kant's Maxims I can delegate this power voluntarily and, for whatever reason, submit to rules of political, moral, and religious ideas or the protection of a ruler. But any compulsion to do so is wrong. Let me give you an example. Somaliland is a reasonably functioning community in northern Somalia, formerly British Somaliland, that emerged after the collapse of the state order in Somalia and wants to continue to exist as such. I once spoke to a Somali taxi driver in the USA about Somaliland. For him, it was absolutely clear that the inhabitants of Somaliland had no right to found their own state. When I asked him why, he said, because we other Somalis don't want that. When I argue in Europe that like-minded people should have the right to live in their own communities where there is no redistribution, for example, the answer is often similar to that of the Somali taxi driver. You can't do that because we don't want to. The same applies to the general rejection of secession. Societies that do not recognize the right of the individual to self-determination, and this includes deciding with whom and in what form he wants to live with others, are in some ways still unenlightened. They will not be able to achieve peaceful coexistence in the long term, but instead will fight endless battles over what we want and what is good for all of us. But anyone who denies people the right to a self-determined life is simply authoritarian, even if he calls himself liberal or democratic. How can individuals exercise the right to shape their own lives? This question arises in view of the fact that, for security reasons alone, merging into a community, namely a state or state-like entity, will still be the rule for the foreseeable future. Of course, it is possible to live an anarchical existence far away from civilization as a hermit, but almost everyone prefers the contact and living together with others. The self-determination challenge can be solved or mitigated by creating a genuine market for state services. The current 200 countries for 7 billion inhabitants, with their largely identical or similar systems, could be supplemented by thousands of independent, or at least partially autonomous communities. This would make it easier for everyone to vote with their feet on bad systems rather than having an immeasurably small influence at the ballot box every few years. States would be forced to attract customers as attractive service providers instead of treating their citizens as cash cows and guinea pigs for testing their ideas on how to make the world a better place. The integration of new models of living together in existing nation-states or supranational communities would not be difficult. For the time being, this would also be advisable, especially for defensive reasons. Such new communities would provide services for payment, services such as security, jurisprudence, and infrastructure. All rights and obligations, in particular what has to be paid for it, would be laid down, as in other markets, in a contract that could not be unilaterally changed. In addition, everyone could choose which service modules they would use from the state service provider and would have to pay accordingly. 
The crucial point is therefore not whether these communities please everyone or a majority. The point is that participation is voluntary, as with all contractual relationships. Whoever rejects all this can remain in conventional systems. For many people, a system based on personal responsibility and self-determination may simply not be the right one. They demand leadership, guidelines for their lives, and a sense of meaning. That, too, is a decision to be respected. Nevertheless, this means that in the future, sovereignty will be expressly granted to the individual, even if he does not want to make use of it. Everyone is therefore basically sovereign of himself and holder of the supreme competence to regulate his own affairs both externally and internally. This gain in self-determination at a higher quality of service at a lower cost will be so attractive that it can even change existing systems without the need for violence, revolution, or winning elections. The sovereignty of the individual is, of course, the polar opposite of all collectivist ideas of a political or religious nature, which require people to refrain from any desire for a self-determined life for the benefit of the common good or the divine order. They mostly ignore the question of who defines the common good or the divine order. Without exception, those will be the representatives of these ideas themselves. And they do so in a way that happens to suit their own interests and preferences, even when they often try to hide that fact even from themselves. Basically, all current systems are still designed to limit the power of the masters without, however, calling into question the legitimacy of domination over others. But this is a long, outdated approach in other areas where we have the right to decide for ourselves how we want to shape our lives. We receive the necessary help from service providers. Let us return to the initial examples. It was about pension insurance, the introduction of the euro, the abandonment of nuclear power, the opening of borders, and foreign military missions. In a contractually regulated society, the state service provider could neither have subsequently forced you to participate in a certain pension insurance system nor to convert your money into a currency you did not want. With the exception of some emission and safety regulations, the operator would also have no influence on who would offer electricity under which conditions. Although the operator could change the criteria for immigration, it could in no way oblige you to be financially responsible for the consequences of any such change. Rather, he would be liable for damages if he were to worsen the security situation as a result. If you want to support military interventions in other parts of the world and interfere in foreign disputes, you would be free to do so. You would do so, however, at your own expense.